Warning. In this episode of Mont Icons, we discuss issues and experiences that could trigger distress or traumatic memories for people, particularly survivors of past abuse, violence, or childhood trauma. In this episode of Mont Icons, we speak with former biker Brent Simpson about gang life, reverting to Islam, and his path to redemption. Brent is a staunch advocate for mental health and speaks openly about ongoing issues relating to trauma. I couldn't tell you what redemption was when I was a kid. You know, um, yeah, it it was a non-existent word. You're talking to a, a broken young man from the Housing Commission of the Western Suburbs of Sydney. Um, that every time I tried to speak about what was happening to me, I was flogged or, you know, just totally kicked to the curb. Brent is the host of true crime podcast, The Clink, where he invites guests to tell their stories of redemption. Brent and I were both office bearers of different outlaw motorcycle clubs, as well as his difficult upbringing, time in prison and subsequent redemption. Brent discusses his life as the former sergeant at arms of the Banditos. We touch on our mutual experiences in motorcycle clubs, the ballroom blitz, a brawl where Christopher Wayne Hudson was shot, and the bikey crackdown in Queensland. Brent from The Clink, welcome to Mont Icons. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Very much, Mr. so. <laughs> hey, tell us about redemption, the, the, the key concept of of what you're doing. What, what, what does redemption mean to you? How, how would you define redemption? Um, a very, very, very good question to start with. And I must say, um, I'm going to touch on this because it's a conversation that I've had over the last couple of days, believe it or not, with uh, people on my, my platform. Um, you see people's comments and they talk about that we glorify uh, criminality, crimes and, um, you know, um, that, that it's basically grubby and dirty. You know, you've got to have your negatives with your positives. And uh, one thing about the clink is the whole purpose of the clink is to deliver a story of redemption. Without a story um, from a background story, without a story with some sort of content uh, and something that's very hard hitting, why do you need a story of redemption? Um, the, the story of redemption comes from Basically, um, well, for example, for myself, from from making some very, very bad mistakes um, or learning curves in my life that it, uh, cost me a lot of years, affected a lot of other people around me. Um, and I believe that the story of redemption is the road that I've chosen to walk to better myself as a human and to inspire others to positivity. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, the kind of crux of any story is conflict. Without conflict, there is no story. That's right. What's war without conflict? So tell us about where you grew up and uh, where the conflict started for you. So I was um, a product of the Housing Commission. Uh, predominantly, it was an Indigenous community. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a white man um, that grew up in an Indigenous uh, mission, basically in the outskirts of the western suburbs of Sydney. Um, came from a broken home. I was um, 
a product of a uh, parent who was quite quite violent, um, consumed a lot of alcohol, worked very hard, he did, but uh, had his demons, which I um, will talk about later with you if, if you're interested to why now as a grown man at 45, I understand a lot more of my father than what I ever did. Um, and I also too uh, was, and I won't use the word victim because I don't believe in giving that power back, but I was, as I am a survivor of uh, child sex abuse. I was uh, molested and raped as a young person um, in the environment that I lived in. No family members, but by neighbours, um, by a priest at school, which I went to at that stage. Uh, when I say priests, I should re- refer that, sorry, refer bring that back to the fact that they were classed as brothers. They look like priests, but they were brothers, uh, Maris brothers. So for me, my world started in a very, very um, big spin. Nobody would listen uh, back then. You know, you were a broken home. You were just shit. You were, you know, you were, you were second grade. I uh, was at a Catholic primary school at that stage. So I was one of very few coming to the school from a broken home. Uh, instantly I was pushed to the side and um, nobody was, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot many friends. I wasn't invited to birthdays. It just wasn't what happened. You know, I was uh, a good, inspiring young footballer. I was very, very good at rugby league later in life. Um, and it sort of made me had to work harder because I wasn't acknowledged as much as probably I should have. When you were a kid, what was your relationship with faith, like being in that environment before before anything happened, how, how did you think about God? Because redemption is such a key key kind of thing in your life. Look, to be honest with you, um, my 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 grandparents are both Irish, passed now. God bless them. Um, my my mother, whom back then was in my life, um, she was raised, you know, very strict Irish Catholic, um, hence it's going to a Catholic primary school. I mean, we were Paul from the Housing Commission, but, you know, the schooling was everything and um, that's what it was about. Um, did I believe in a God? I, I can't answer that, to be honest with you, because I I don't, I know, I, I don't know if I ever did, especially back then. Um, yes, I went through all the, the, the processes of a, of a good Catholic boy and, you know, yes, I was also raped and molested by um, those that were in trust of us that were, um, you know, uh, people um, supposed to be children or, or, you know, deliverers of, of God's word, um, somebody whom you're supposed to trust in and, you know, could find safety in and... and uh, so for me, no, I can't honestly say religion had a big play in my life personally, but it was a big part of what was going on around me. Brent, returning to redemption a little, do you remember hearing this concept thrown around when you were younger and what did you make of it? I couldn't tell you what redemption was when I was a kid. You know, um, yeah, it, it was a non-existent word. You're talking to a, a broken young man from the Housing Commission of the Western Suburbs of Sydney. Um that every time I tried to speak about what was happening to me, I was flogged or, you know, just totally kicked to the curb, like physically bashed. Um, yeah, it was, I don't ever remember redemption ever being a part of my mind or word vocabulary ever in that, that part of my early part of life. 
What did you learn about violence then? Because um, you absorbed a lot of it at a very, you know, formative age. And at what point does that become natural to you? Like it becomes normalised in, in your worldview? Because it happens quite young, I think. Yeah, it did. And look, you know, um, I think back then too, late 70s, early 80s, um, you know, you, you you had a son, he was raised tough, played rugby league or, you know, I mean, footy or as you would know it. Um, you didn't bitch, you didn't whinge and obviously you never ever sort of talked out of school. If you did say anything, yeah, it didn't go down well. So that's embedded into you. Uh, you know, the whole violent side of it, you become just accustomed to that's how it is. Um, you become so broken that, you don't even know how to protect yourself in the end. And then all of a sudden one day you just click and there's not a person or a thing that will you will let harm you again. And that's where world, the world for me became a very, very violent place in my doings. Would you call it empowerment? Through violence, like did, did violence that empower age. you? Definitely, definitely not at that age. I think later in life, definitely. Um, you know, uh, as things progressed and where I ended up and and the things that I got involved with, um, absolutely. Yep, I would say most definitely because for me at that stage, I got to a point as a, a late teenager, knowing that I was a force to be reckoned with. That. I would go to whatever extreme you wanted to go to to make sure that you did not beat me or you did not uh, get it over me in any way, shape or form. Um, that was how I ended up becoming me. How do you process the trauma of inflicting violence at this stage of your life? How much, how much of redemption is, is that? There is no redemption at that age. Yep. My age now, um, there's years of redemption. Um, you know, going back... The more I inflicted, the stronger I became. Uh, the more feared I became, the less I had to worry about somebody harming or hurting me in any way, shape or form that I uh, feared and felt growing up as a young person. you got to remember I was on the streets, you know, by the age of 11, uh, sleeping in stolen cars in the middle of football ovals, breaking into, um, you know, um, your community halls just to turn a heater on around the walls so I slept in warmth in winter. Um, I was broken, totally broken. And for me, the only way I knew to go forward was to be that that person that people would all of a sudden take note of and wouldn't harm, wouldn't hurt because I became such a a fearless and violent person. Yeah, I mean... It is interesting, like the further I, f I find that I move away from it, the more it haunts me, this idea that I I impose the same trauma that I might have experienced when I was young on other people. Like I never, I never really thought about that, but the distance, uh, the further away you move away from it, you start to think, fuck, I actually started doing some of, the, some of those awful things to other people that, how do you deal with that? I struggle with that. I, I mean, I, I, yeah, that that's a really good question for me. I think you know the big turning point was after nearly fourteen years of jail, and my last sentence was six years. Um, being a gang member and an ex-gang member, um, I rebelled the first couple of years because I was so angry and violent. I was basically a part of the gang units. I was um, segro for 
several times over years, you know, like it just became to the point where I refused to be broken but I allowed myself to break down who I was. Um, For me, I reverted. Um, I I found faith in Islam Um, and... You know, that that wasn't something that um, was a following or a cult or, you know, like you see a lot of systematic people today that go in there and they, they tend to jump on board for their own protection or this was me in a cell reaching out, trying to find something that would give me peace within myself. Um, I did a lot of reading, a lot of soul searching and a lot of self-forgiveness because I blamed myself for a lot of things. Um, you need to find peace, let go of that bitterness and that anger. Redemption came for me after that, the coming home from that and realising that I don't want to be that person and then sitting down and thinking about the things that I had done and how people felt, you know. um, I was in for commercial importation. Uh, How many people would have been affected? How many lives would have been lost had that have happened and gone through? there's no doubt it would have destroyed many lives. So, you know, I definitely started to feel compassion. I definitely started to realise that if I wanted to be a better human, I had to go real, real deep, um, bring up my pain and anger from the past and let it be gone. I had to find something that I could find faith and a connection in um, and something that gave me self-belief to be a better human, to want to strive to help others. Um, to to give back and to try and um, redeem, mm. find some sort of uh, redemption within my own actions and, and my life. Let's, let's go back a bit and break down uh, when you started getting involved in gangs. Was it all like uh, we were both members of uh, office bearers and outlaw motorcycle clubs, but what was it? Was that your first foray into gang culture or what 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 were your Western Sydney? I mean, there was yes. throughout the late eighties, early nineties, a lot of gangs. Yep. Um, yeah. Was Especially it? coming out of the streets of the Western Sydney. Um, you know, you've got to remember low demographic um, housing commission, a lot of multiculturalism. Um, you know, I was a white fella in, in predominantly Islander and uh, indigenous communities. There was a lot of Asians that started to come. I, I got on very well with just about everybody, but I also too clashed with, just about everybody too, you know, that was just part of life. Uh, for me, it predominantly started, you know, around a street street crews. I mean, we were uh, what we called searchers back in the day, you know, like we were known for certain style of robberies and um, bank bank jumping bank counters, you know, we were, we were ram raiders. We were, we were a crew of brothers that actually were pretty hardcore, um, you know, like a lot of... People I knew turned to heroin back then because that's just like ice today. It was the drug of choice and everybody sort of was chasing the dragon. I didn't. I, I was that guy that seen, I guess, the value of the dollar in that. Um, and I thought, well, if everybody's going to Cabra or wherever they're going to school, why can't they just come and see me and me be the person that's got some money for once? And that's the road that I took. That sort of, you know, brought my name up. That allowed me to walk on certain sort of paths that, you know, you meet certain people to which later then, um, you know, I was just turned 17 and I was offered a bike by a particular club um, back then in the southwestern Sydney who was a, quite a strong club, still around today, obviously. Um, and, you know, I was like, nah, fuck this. I, I don't need no club. So 
I'm a one-man band or I had my 5'8 and we just did what we did. Well, then every time we went out, you know, to the local nightclubs and that, the noms would be lined up to, as soon as we walk through the door, yeah, they've disrespect, you know, go and get them. Well, next thing you know, we're all in brawling and me and one of my particular buddies would back-to-back and we did well, real well. So next thing you know, we're getting invited back to the clubhouse, you know, and then shouted drinks and all of a sudden we're accepted within this this world. You know, you go from a street world to then a um, a structured you know, um, outlaw world, if I can put it that way. Describe what the, what the that first impression was like when you walked through the. You were invited back to the clubhouse. What did it look like? What what was it? Illustrate that because I yeah. I remember so you know, coming into the clubhouse and it was like, all oh, right, it's a big industrial sort of area. It's very dark. It's very dingy. You know, and you know, people go missing all the time and things happen and it's like oh, shit, this is a bit eerie. But then you walk in there, you know, and you're in there and you come in there with a very close office bearer who um, has passed now. Um, and, you know, I literally was, yeah, this is this is my mate, whatever he wants at the bar. Next thing you know, out comes a nine mil and boom, 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 into the roof, party's on, tits are out, drinks are flowing, next minute plates are getting handed around. And back then was a lot of amphetamine. You know, and, and you're playing up, you're there for two days and all of a sudden you're, you're one of the boys. Well, I thought that that's how it was because I felt all of a sudden accepted into this bigger, bigger picture. And then, you know, those outside of that were looking at me going, far out, man, you, you're in there. You, you know, you're, you're one of the boys. I'm like, yeah, chest out, you know, I've worked hard, you know, I've got my street cred. And, and uh, yeah, mate, that goes real sour real quick when you tell them you don't want to wear their colours. Um, <laughs> especially. So then it become, a, you know, trying to stand over us and trying to get us to um, – you know, do things for them and pay money here and pay money. And it just never happened, um, which that was a part of my violence, my my way of going forward that no one was going to stand up. And it didn't matter who you were, I was ready to want to run the ball up. Yeah, but talk, about, talk a bit about climbing the ranks when you were part of that system because, you know, you got allured by that system. You obviously loved it. Like I loved it. I did. I did. Look, you know, and I often sit back and I, I ponder on it, you know, but th- to me it'll never be what it was. So I don't think that we've missed anything and I don't have any um, need or want to go into what today is classed mm-hmm. as uh, a 1% percenters lifestyle. But or what a- was it back then? Oh, look, you know, I think it was just the fact of feeling the people respected you. You know what I mean? Like I was just this kid that had been abused, torn and absolutely ripped to pieces that was just so broken. Then all of a sudden, you know, I've 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 done some really bad stuff to to gain notoriety and my 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 name, you know, or my nickname to be out there so people sort of were aware of who I was. Then all of a sudden, you know, I'm involved in a few other heavy things that really stamped down that I was there as a serious contender. Um, I had always sort of got on with the right people, if I can put it that way. You know, I wasn't just another member from the moment when I first come in. I paid my dues. I still, you know, I I did my time and I earned my colours, don't get me wrong. But, um, you know, I, I was able to communicate and be a part of a bigger picture. So... A lot of people don't like that, as you will be well aware of. Um, and you find that, you know, even within your own brotherhood that, you know, there comes out the knives in the back and, you know, the, the different sort of manipulation games and things like that. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I loved what it was about. I loved the, the brotherhood. I loved the men that I, I, I 
said I'd live and die beside. Mm. Um, you know, getting getting put in a position of power, I don't think it ever gave me an ego. What it did is it gave me a sense of I can now protect others, if that meant sense. Mm. You know, I was this this young person that no one protected and then all of a sudden I'm getting looked at and respected because I'm that guy that's going to fucking make sure you don't get shot or you don't get bashed. And if anything happens, I'm the one that's going to run the ball up and retribute. And I like that. I felt good because I was not from, like I said, an ego point of view, but just a protection of knowing that people didn't want to fuck with me because I was that guy that would go the extra mile. I could get the job done. And I think that gave me a real sense of protection in my own self and person. Uh, as well as the brotherhood, you know, the, the the love of each other and the camaraderie that there was back then. Um, that was your family. And in your in your position, um, what were some of the the rules and codes that you wanted to safeguard in that environment? Because those rules shift like and change like every every month. They could, you know, staunch staunch codes of conduct can be manipulated by the vote of a different person. So what were some of the rules that you wanted to stick staunch by and keep keep protected? Yeah, I wanted to embed the fact of, you know, the dirty drugs sort of thing. That was a big thing for me. Um, look, I, I was never been a fan of, you know, the ice factor and that. And that, that came in, you know, pretty hard and wiped out a lot of good people. You must have been involved when that first became a thing. Well, it was Shabu. It wasn't even called ice. Like it was, and then there was crank. So you were mixing like a bit of um, speed with a bit of coke. And next thing you know, there's there's shabu shabu. Well, what was shabu shabu? Shabu was like, you know, this meth that you could cook up. You know, it was pure as we called it, or, you know, a little bit of glug. Um, then it became this crystallization. And then it just took a, it took a turn that, because you got to remember back in the day, you know, there was a lot of blokes that loved a little bit of a spoonful and that was the thing under the tongue and they were at the clubhouse for a day or two and they were always good. They could drink as much as they want um, and they'd be able to hold their own. You know, not, not in a mental, like, like physical, but not get sloppy, you know, always be alert and always be on the game. For me, I felt that was a massive part that, you know, you didn't let that drug culture come into your brotherhood in that way to destroy that. Mm. Um you know, always having your phone on. I know this will probably haunt you too, but you know, so, your phone. Man, I still get anxious yeah, thinking about yeah, that. Your phone yeah. never ever turns off. If I ring you in the middle of the fucking night, you answer it. You know, because you just don't know. Um, I'd have three phones back then that'd be going all night long, and, and I'd be there one minute with a group of friends, next minute I'd be on a plane, I'd be here, I'd be there, I'd be going overseas. It was just what it was, and I felt that, you know, that had to be go down the line. You just had to be there for your brother. You know, and and I think to respect, you know, respecting each other's ladies. I never tolerated anything to do with um, disrespectfulness uh, or deceivingness to any brother's partners. And, and, you know, what happened at church stayed at church. Mm. The the things that were very important. I mean, obviously, too, when you're in public, you know, I wouldn't wouldn't tolerate people out there bringing the club into disarray by their actions. Um, I felt that that was important. Did you boys, you boys must have gone gone out into the public a fair bit. I know when we were, when I was involved in a club, we weren't allowed fucking anywhere. It was kind of like, oh, I caught, I caught a little glimpse of it where we were going out and to the boxing and clubs and that, but it was few and far between. 
Look, I come on the back of some good times. You are very well aware of the good times on the Gold Toast, especially where you were originally from. You know, you guys had a, a big stronghold there, um, which for some it wasn't good because they obviously, uh, you know, clashed, but for others. And, and you've got to remember too, in my position, I, I was able to communicate with others in that same position in other outfits. So for me, it was a good thing I could come and sit down and have a drink with you without any um, any any issues. We could talk if we needed to discuss certain things. Um, and it was all done applicable. You know what I mean? It wasn't There wasn't any aggression or anything sort of untoward to each other, a handshake and a hug or whatever at the end of the night. Thank you very much for your hospitality. As the club I was in, it was predominantly known that we never needed to mix with anybody else because we were big enough on our own. We, we had enough brothers. We didn't really bring outsiders into our clubhouse. Um, you know, it wasn't until I think the latter part of stage where, uh, you know, the, uh, goodwill, I suppose, and a few things that brought some uh, different outfits together where out of good faith and good gesture, you'd have a party, you'd invite them. And, and that was that. Was it something done every week or every month? No way in the world. And it wasn't. It was this around the time that it was, everybody was kind of doing that out of necessity, where the United Motorcycle Council, you went, all that stuff, kind of kicked off. So when when everything went down in Queensland, um, there was without us talking too much about it. Um, there was a, a big issue that took place. Like I remember the, the ballroom blitz, for example. That was a big thing, um, you know. And I I at that time was uh, living with Chris. You know, Hutto, we, we lived together. So he was with one crew and I was with another crew, but we were like that. Um, so, you know, it was very difficult in some ways, but it was also quite good in others. Um, I, I, had, I was in jail when all that stuff went down at Broad Beach with the clubs up there and all that sort of thing. Um, I had left the club well and truly by then and I was um, into the back end of my, my sentence. I don't know the facts of it, but I know that that, that point there, things changed dramatically. So, no, I, I, I definitely wasn't um, a part of that era where one percenters were getting crushed out. I had just stepped away from it like three to six months prior to that. Yeah, 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 I mean... Yeah, I can't really talk too much about about that <laughs> stuff. I will say rest in peace, Bowden, but uh, didn't really yeah. have much to do with him um, yeah. in the latter, latter stage of his life and I don't know anything around that situation. No, nah, and I mean, look, we all, yeah, I mean, look, you knew the bloke, I knew the bloke and there's many other blokes, you know, mm. that have passed since passed on that uh, were, were good blokes, you know. Like yeah. I, I remember sitting down many a time, you know, having a – a Friday, well, Friday was with your brothers, but, you know, if you were that bloke that got invited and you could go to somewhere else and you knew Saturday morning they were kicking on, then off you'd go and, you know, you'd hang out there for the day with a few of the opposition or the other the other crew, you know what I mean? I, I, I was lucky enough to be able to do that um, and, and do it respectfully, being who I was and representing my brothers, um, but also to being accepted into another clubhouse. Did you did you ever think about the sacrifices involved when you because you, man people were getting shot and killed all the Look, time? Look for me, I was ready to kill. Um, it's as simple as that, and I you know was there to protect my fellow brothers and myself. I mean, there was many a times there where confrontations had taken place. Um, yeah, I, I've got a few scars that uh, I live with from that, but. Um, you know, the body heals, but the mind's always got that there. You know, did I ever lose 
a brother out of my chapter um, whilst we were at war with other clubs, which one in particular we were at war with for quite some time. And there were definitely a lot that went on like under the radar, so to speak. Not like today where you see it all in public. There was no no person's house or anything like that. Um, it, it was predominantly, you know, actions taken away from women and children and, and you know, businesses. It, it didn't happen like that at all. But there out, were lot, out in the lot, country, the tri country trips. <laughs> Mate, there was, look, people died all over Australia. You know, from both sides. So, you know, I have kissed many a dead brother on the head goodbye and um, it, it's never easy, you know, and you always remember that. Um, I, I felt very proud, though, that during those times that I was able to make sure that, you know, um, the chapter that I was in the position I was in was safe and the brothers that I were with all are, well, as far as I know, alive today. I mean, I'm not in the club anymore. Do you ever think back on, like, fuck, man, what were we, 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 what were we prepared to do? Like, how, how insane is that, the, the, the frame of mind that we were in? Today, I, I just don't think you could get away with doing anything, you know, even when I say get away, I mean, I'm not talking about things that, you know, we did or got away. I'm just speaking in general. Um, and what I'm saying is if you had the mindset that we had back then and acted the way that we acted, you would be doing life today. You know, like you just, you just couldn't. The way the world is, the technology and uh, just... The, the man today, the different diff, diff, different style of man, you know. DX, what do you make of this conversation that we're having uh, as as an outsider to the to this world? What do you make of this? This is definitely one that I that I would listen and not comment on or interject. You know, uh, especially given the traumas that you openly talk about attached to this, both in seeing people you know die and also um the violence that you've inflicted but i'm very interested in that um experience that you had um in jail convert converting and finding faith and 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 um that that's one thing that i really loved about when i was listening to your podcast is that you always try and um bring it back to that experience in people where where there was a a move away from it and and what what that meant so i'd like to highlight that experience for you and can we can we go through like when you went to prison and you know sticking fat with the club and doing 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 the right thing uh, which a lot of people don't do but and then and then how and then the point at which you decided to find faith and move away like we'll, take us through that narrative Let, let's take it back for starters um i was on my own i had left the club um just before or oh, about six months before I'd gone to jail. And even when I'd gone to jail, I still stayed in the wing and the jails that that club was at. Um, and How dangerous is that for, for people that are listening? Oh, fucking, it's crazy. And look, it turned sour probably about two and a half years down the track because I ended up having conflict with a member um, and we had a fight and the bottom line was I came out the victor and, you know, it humiliated the other brothers within there in front of the, the, the whole wing. It made that moment not really respectful, I guess, in, in that. So it was quite intimidating in that sense because, you know, here I was um, almost halfway through my sentence. I wasn't a member when I went to jail. I was looking at 10 years. I ended up with six. You know, I, I to this day, 
um, put my hand up, pled guilty. No one else was charged. That was it. Full stop. I got the sentence and I did the time. You know, you can never, ever go through the system and not have people sit there and bag you um, once you leave a club. You'll always find someone out there, and especially new up-and-comers that are trying to prove a point. Um, you know, you'll hear in the background comments of, we kicked him out of the club, he's a dog, he's this, he's that. There's, there's no fact to that whatsoever. There's not a human alive that's ever had a, a statement or a day's jail out of my mouth. Um, I can verify that a lot of very solid, solid yeah. men across the country have a lot of deep respect for you. So Yeah, thank you. And, and you know, I, I really have held my own in that respect. I've, you know, I've got three children, four children. Um, you know, I'm, my wife was pregnant. I had every opportunity to flip the coin and, and you know, roll the dice and, and take the other option. I didn't. You know, I stuck staunch. And I went in there as an independent person, but I walked in without an N.A., asking to be put away from the brothers that I had just left as a club. Which a lot of people do. Uh, absolutely. And, and look, I won't lie to you. I didn't know what to expect. You know, all I knew is I had no skeletons in my closet. So what did I have to fear? You know what I mean? All I'd ever done was look after my brother, always respected my club, always done right in every way possible. I chose to leave uh, for a very good reason, which later came out in the wash anyway. And it wasn't, you know, um, to me, nothing that I had done other than punch this person without authority. Um, <laughs> and I, I, like I said, it, it's, yeah, I won't go into the depths of that because that opens up a whole new big thing that um, probably doesn't need to get spoken about publicly. So in that scenario, yes, definitely there was thoughts in the back of my mind. Do I arm up? Where is this going to take me? What do I have to do? And, and I stayed true. Um, you know, the first couple of years was very, very hard. I rebelled a lot. Um, I ended up striking out at offices. So I ended up getting segro. Um, and as I said, you know, I did 12 months segregation. In that time, you got nothing. Um, you're meeting a lot of high, high maximum security prisoners. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with someone whom I knew who is one of Australia's most notorious um, uh, prisoners the highest risk prisoner in Australia. And, you know, um, he's still there and got many years to go. But we talked a lot. Um, and, you know, for me, I didn't like to read. Then all of a sudden I was handed a Quran um, and I chose to read it. And I found peace with him just from the words of, you know, what was happening and, and how it was meant to be. And it was all about peace. It was no, it didn't say anything about violence or, you know, um, how do you explain it? It's a beautiful book to read. Simple mm. as that. And if people took the time to understand different religions, I mean, my wife is, is uh, a Hare Krishna Hindu sort of background. Um, you know, I, I spent many years in Thailand. So Buddhism was always something that I truly got in depth with because of the spiritual side of it all. And then I found uh, a very, very passionate peace within my heart and, and my soul once I uh, reverted to Islam. I think this is an interesting point that a lot of people don't actually talk about is that people involved in this world are often deeply religious uh, or re religious in some sense. Um, why do you think that is, man? Because like, uh, uh, most people will think that we're just this 
fucking atheist, godless people that could have no morality and just will do whatever it takes to to get ahead. But really, a lot of a lot of the men that I knew were deeply yeah. religious and spiritual people. And and you know, it doesn't matter what religion you are. Mm. Um, you know, some of my closest brothers were European, Serbian, so you know, um, they're orthodox and very very strong in their faith. Um, you know, a lot of the Shabab, the the, the Muslim brothers. You know, very strong in their faith. I mean, would they always go to Friday prayer? Not sure. Some do, some don't. Do they drink alcohol? You know, look, no one can judge but God. You know what I mean? So at the end of the day, you know, that's between you and God. If you say that you're Catholic, Buddhist, and what have you, that's your choice. I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to belittle you. You know what I mean? If if somebody was to do wrong, wouldn't matter what religion you are, what walk of life, what color of creed. If you do something wrong to somebody, you, it's going to get dealt with. It's as simple as that. And what about the experience of, of seeing the Muslims in the prison yard because they act I mean, they, they behave differently because of their faith, right? Look, you, you get tested. I mean, if you, the al-Fatihah, you know what I mean? Like if, if you don't know the first prayer, uh, the opening verses, you, you, can't be, you can't fool people, you know what I mean? So the brothers would know. But if you had a genuine heart, um, that, you know, wanted to truly understand Islam and, um, you know, really deeply read and be educated, then you would be given the, that that opportunity. Um, if you disrespected that, then you, you obviously, you know, were, were treated accordingly too. And I, I think that's one of the biggest things in there, you know, like you've got your church services for your Catholics and, you know, your Asian boys in there, you know, they have not a service, but they're, they're strong in their Buddhism or, you know, things like that. But, um, you know, the, the brothers of Islam, well, they're very proud, very proud of, of their, their religious background and, and, you know, they pray there five times a day. Did you, you spend know? time in the Muslim yard at Goulburn? Look, I, went, I never got to Goulburn. Um, I spent a lot of time everywhere else but Goulburn. Um, but Bathurst was like that. Silverwater was like that. Um, I was there on that turn. See, Goulburn had just started to identify um, race and religion because of, you know, the, the yards down there were becoming killing yards. So they just started to really push a lot of the brothers together in one yard so they could contain that, that group, you know, a lot of the islanders, Asians and, and indigenous um, I didn't get to Goulburn and I, I'm glad I didn't get to Goulburn. don't care really about Goulburn. <laughs> um, but, you know, there was many other jails um, just as bad, if not worse in some ways. And I think probably Goulburn had a lot more structure because of that, because of the yard separation. Um, you know, if you fucked up within your own, your own clique, well, that's your problem. But, you know, you sort of – it it was almost like a – a little bit of a line of command within themselves, if that makes sense, which, you know, obviously could work for the screws or work against them. Whereas when you went to other jails, especially maximum security jails, sure, you'd have your brothers there, um, you know, and then you'd have other yards. But, you know, there was always a lot of mix. It wasn't always predominantly just specific yards. Brent, did you have any kind of uh, mentor figure when you were experiencing this you know, renewed faith or this um, trans transformative experience. Was there anyone around you that could provide 
a bit of guidance. Yeah, there was. There was, look, I had, I was actually really blessed. Like I say, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough to grow up around a lot of Muslim brothers for me. So I was always at their tables, you know, like I was always there, Ramadan. I was always a part of what their life was like as a Muslim. So for me, I understood anyway, you know, and I instantly could relate, had respect, you know, I, I learned a lot. So the brothers gave me that, I guess, open arm, if I can put it that way, and a lot of love, you know what I mean? Like I'd go to a jail and it wouldn't take long before I'd have, you know, um, my necessities in a nice little bag or some, some some extras and food and whatever I needed and it was always the shabab that would look after you, you know what I mean? Um, any one person, well, definitely there was one or two, you know, but I think a, as a brotherhood and we're talking about jail and I'll speak openly just because it is all male, um, yeah, I, I was I was a part of some some really, really good brothers. Did you ever get any blowback from other inmates for joining or becoming or reverting. Yeah, look, there was, you know, you get your, your like more more just the Aussie blokes that, you know, had known me before outside, you know, like I, for me, Friday prayer was, you know, the best because it was something to look forward to. You were side by side, you know, you're, you're praying with brothers, you're, you're smiling, you're hugging. You, It's a beautiful connection and it's peaceful. You know what I mean? Like the Adan is silent and the next minute it's everybody's just in one space for the one reason. And it is a very rewarding thing, you know. In Segra it was very hard because you'd have one of the brothers call to prayer and then, you know, we'd all be segregated so none of us would see us. So, you know, you wouldn't be side by side basically just touching each other, you know what I mean? Or you would be separate. It'd be just you. But you'd hear, you know, the beautiful call to prayer and then it'd be, that's it. You know, you're praying on your own. Hmm. So that was totally different, you know. And then when you, when people haven't seen you for a while and you're coming to a new jail and you're in the yard and, you know, they talk to you or they look at you a bit funny and next minute, you know, you, you, you're sitting down with all the brothers and they start looking like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, like it, 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 it's true. They do, but then at the same time, you know, if you're strong enough in your faith and if you're strong enough in your own person, it doesn't matter what anyone. I mean, for me, it was about me, you know, and, and I found um, a very, very, to be honest with you, I feel that me finding faith and being a part of such a brotherhood, when I speak of brotherhood, I mean how you felt like you had family there. You know what I mean? When you wanted to talk to a brother, you could talk to a brother and it would be, Honest talk, no bullshit. Um, you could trust the brother. Don't get me wrong. There's always people that aren't trustworthy in every religious creed and race. Like it doesn't matter. There's always going to be. But majority, could I have said that, uh, you know, amongst the, the Aussies as such or the others? Nah. Every time you'd have a conversation, you'd be worrying about where it's going to go. And if you said the right thing, did I say something wrong? Will it be turned around the wrong way? Is he going to want to throw a blade in me because of what he – like it just – it's just bad, you know. It's really, really bad, and it's no good for your head. Faith, well, faith within Islam, within the the jail system, it was just peaceful. Mm. What happens if um, two Muslims are from different gangs and they come into prison? What? Just explain that to. It's sort of a little bit haram to be sitting here making these comments, I suppose, because you're speaking about 
two brothers. You know mm. what I mean? Um, I think it's more family. It's got nothing to do with faith. Mm. It comes down to bloodline. And unfortunately, um, you know, blood gets spilt. I think I can't really put that any other way. Yeah, right. So there are fractures that happen. It's not all united at all times. No, no, it's not. And I mean, majority, yes, but that's why there's jails with separated inmates and, you know, brothers that are all good and then you've got brothers that (laughs) take the first chance to pull your eyes out and cut your throat, you know. Um, Yeah. I tell you, I tell you something. The the, the indigenous boys, you know, uh, are pretty good like that. They look out for each other. You know, don't get me wrong, man. There's some things there that you know I don't really uh, like that I've seen in there that they, you know, will do to each other, especially when it comes down to money or drugs. But um, you know, when you're talking about standing by each other, one hundred percent, you pretty well, unless you've really been a bad, bad person, you've done some bad things you'll always have that that brotherhood there, you know, and that to me was, um, you know, pretty good. But, you know, you get the Aussies and you're on your fucking home, mate, you know. It's it's quite a lonely road. Brent, since uh, you've started working on the Clink podcast, you've done a lot of work in trying to educate people on the consequences of decisions that, that, that they've made, like telling their story, kind of drawing that stuff out. So I'd like to just uh, focus on that for a little while. I'd like to hear perhaps like um, maybe a couple of examples of stories that you'd heard that you're like particularly proud at, at fleshing out with people. Yeah, look, um, you know, wow, there's, there is there is quite a few. Russell Manson comes to mind, um, you know, first and foremost, uh, 21 years jail, um, you know, half his life as a heroin addict, bank robber. Um, the man was unfortunately put into a prison cell at 17 years of age at uh, Long Bay when they shouldn't have done that. He wasn't 18. Um, They put him in there with um, being a juvenile with uh, sex offenders and he was raped um, by these perpetrators, Uh, was forced to take heroin, was given injections of heroin in the jail cell so they would basically just take advantage of him. So... Russell Manser today is a powerful voice for an organisation called The Voice of a Survivor who has helped, I'd have to be up to about 12,000, 13,000 people, survivors, seek um, justice and compensation for any institutional abuse that they have gone through. That's a remarkable turnaround um, from a man who, you know, literally was addicted to the devil and the strength of that is, is, you know, over and beyond, you know, I think that um, if anyone's ever seen a heroin addict hang out, it, it's, it's not good, you know, and this man's confronted his demons and, and each day he lives still as, an, as um, an ex-addict or a recovering addict, sorry, if I can put it that way. But he's um, since educated himself, he's, um, he's university degrees, he's, you know, studied law, and he's just an inspiring person, you know. That that right there, to me, is probably one of the most powerful stories of redemption. And aside from the, um, like, being exposed yourself to these in- inspiring stories, what drew you to 
to doing a podcast? Like what, what was that journey like? So when I got out of jail, let's just backtrack for a second. When I got out of jail, um, there was two persons that had taken their lives uh, on the run in Segro, which pretty well rattled me because I was someone who'd lived with suicidality and had attempted my life in younger years. And I thought that's going to be me sooner or later. Or I'm going to end up dead from gang sort of uh, life. Um, I needed to make a change. And I knew that I was strong within my own heart. I knew that, you know, I was finding peace within faith. So I had to then go back to who I was. The story for me was wanting to come out and do something good to inspire people that they can be better. Um, For me, it was about doing something that no one had ever done before and being seen not notorious but someone with a heart that's compassionate someone that cared. I live with type 2 bipolar, so I live with uh, a lot of mental health, health issues. Um, not so much today. I'm, I'm actually quite well. and um, But, you know, I've dealt with a lot of trauma too. You know, I've, I've done a lot of things in the last five, six years to really change my whole mental state and ability to be able to wake up each day and smile. Even in my toughest times and right now, I'm going through some terrible times, but there's a brighter day. Um, I chose to, once I finished my parole, be the first in the world to cycle a push bike across Australia, 4,564 kilometres from Snapper Rocks on the Gold Coast to Cottesloe Beach in Perth. Now, I did this, did 2,000 kilometres of that with a fractured elbow and didn't tell anybody. Got rushed to Royal Adelaide Hospital from Sejuna, airlifted. Uh, had 36 stitches and an operation and within seven days signed myself out, jumped back on the bike and did another 2,000 kilometres in 10 days. I knew at that stage I was going to be a better human. I was going to be a caring human. I knew why I was out there. I was out there to raise awareness for suicide, uh, bringing noise to the communities and to the country people and, you know, letting people know how bad things were in the mental health space. It needed attention. I, I got millions and millions of dollars worth of media, you know, and that's all I wanted. It wasn't about raising money. There was bugger or money raised. It was quite sad in that respect. It cost us, my wife and I, you know, and people that had invested in me that believed in me. Um, so, you know, at that stage, I knew that I could make a difference. And, yeah, as time went on, I, I started a charity called the Heavy Hitters Foundation um, that was very successful um, to the point where funding became a problem in the third year um, and we just couldn't get funding. All the bigger organisations were getting all allocated, you know, the monies that were there and it was very, very hard to get someone to be able to write, you know, a grant writer that knew exactly how to pull it that wasn't already doing it for a corporate company, you know. Um, but I'm proud to say that I took a, an idea, a vision and turned it into what they call as a business, which then, you know, not-for-profit, which then gave a charity status. You don't just get that. That's a lot of hard work, you know. You've got to mm. show content. You've got to – they go right through, especially someone like me with a past like mine – you know, it took months and months and months. And in the end, I was given the, the, the proud moment of you're a successful person. You're a director of a charity um, uh, with others, obviously, on the board. But, you know, that to me was successful. That to me, I don't have a trade in life. I started to really feel like I was starting my story of redemption. Mm. Um, then I started driving trucks around Australia. I, I, you know, I jumped in a semi and that was my work for for years, you know, I'd Long haul um, into the middle of remote Australia, the top ends and 
I got to see so much and meet so many people. I started talking to people and conversations always ended back up into somebody losing someone through suicide or their own mental health or just that. It it was bizarre. It was drawn to me. I just kept drawing these people in need to have this chat. And me being me, it was like I felt like I was out there to provide that ear. Sure, I was out there earning my living for my family, but there was so much more to it and that's how I looked at it. And and the, the best thing about the way that you handle those conversations is you never really bring religion into it for those that are listening. It's purely, it's it's got nothing to do with that. It's it's purely you just having conversations with people and helping them and showing them that there's this uh, reason to, to, to stick around. And, and, and Absolutely. I mean, look, suicidality and mental health, it doesn't discriminate. It'll pick anybody from any, any race, any religion. You know, we're not, we're all, we're all here to be, you know, torn apart by, by certain things. And, you know, like death is guaranteed. And, you know, if you are someone that has, ends up, you know, living with a trauma or a mental health issue or, you know, it, it can be so lonely, you know, it can be so tough. And it doesn't discriminate. It could be your sister, your mum, your dad. It doesn't tell you what age it's going to pop up. Where does that come into religion or colour? It doesn't, mm. you know. So that is 100% correct. It, 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 there is no room for that sort of that thought. Yeah, I love the, what, you, what you just said earlier about, you know, you, you kind of taught, taught yourself that there's, you can be something else. You know, there's always something you can do. Where, you know, so many times when you're involved in that life, it's like you, you feel backed into a corner and it's like I've either got to do this because there's no – but by, by sharing these stories that you, like you do and presenting the world through various perspectives to these young people who might be in those situations, they know that like no matter what you've done, you can reinvent yourself, you can recreate yourself. You can bring yourself back but you've got to want to do it. You know, look, I, I'll be very honest. I, I had this vision to do this ride. I was on parole, you know, federal offender. So, um, you know, I had to, uh, <laughs> I had like a three-year parole period, you know, one of the longest at that stage because, you know, most of year, two years parole. Well, I got given the big one. <laughs> it was just part and parcel. I couldn't move, literally couldn't go across the border. And I lived in a border town to go to work. I had weekly visits for so long. I wasn't a drug user, you know. I didn't have issues. They just wanted me on a tight leash. So in that time, I thought, you know what, I'm going to embrace this. I, I will do whatever I can work-wise locally, um, which wasn't a lot. So obviously I had to depend on a government assistance back then. And um, I trained my butt off. You know, I, I invested in a cycling bike and the bike became a best friend. And uh, the best thing I ever did was do it to release my mental um, blockages, you know, and then when that time came and I said goodbye to my children, my wife, you know, the media, <laughs> this is a fucking media. So the Gold Coast Bullet, and I'll say their name because no, no, it's, I'm not giving them a pump. I'm just, they need to be heard, you know, like they did an interview the day before I left. Anyway, this thing at Broad Beach, the bikey big bull had just happened, you know, I think a year before or something. So it was still very fresh. And then all of a sudden, here's this bikey. You know, ex-bikey who's in Lycra and covered in tats about to cycle across Australia and who is GPS so at any time anyone could see where my live beacon was. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you wanted to get me, you had plenty of places to hide and just pop me clean off the fucking face of the earth. Uh, and that was already, you know, not that I'd done anything wrong in my own said sort of mind, but 
man, I'd done things with others and against others over the years that this could have been a perfect scenario and situation for someone to square up. But that wasn't my issue. In the end, it was the media. They were doing this story and then the story went from ex-bikey cycles across Australia to raise awareness for mental health to ex-bikey states that all current bikies are weak, uh, stick needles into their, their, their backsides to build them up, put a tattoo on their face and they all think they're tough. And, and just basically it was their words saying that I was writing them off. You know, it went from this, mm. this, this beautiful little paragraph to this massive three columns about bikies and my opinion. I hadn't said anything. Like my interview was related to the whole ride. There wasn't even conversation of club talk. I mean, I just don't do it. Mm. So naturally I've picked the paper up excited and it's like, holy fuck, I can't. And I said to my wife, I said, babe, I'm in some trouble. That's what these reporters don't understand uh, when they report on these issues. There's real life consequences. Bikies love gossip as much as they love reading the paper. I just left for four and a half thousand kilometres with one bloke following me in a car in a caravan some of the most loneliest open roads in this country um, with a target on my back. People think it's a joke, like it's not real, like the same way young people think that joining gangs isn't real, but what you write down in your report can have serious real-life consequences. People being stabbed in jail, people almost being killed in jail because of shit that crime reporters have written. People have been knocked. Yeah, because of because of what people absolutely, and the truth written. comes out. It's all too late. The person's gone. Yeah, no, no you journalist know, like, is ever answerable to that. But it it does pour fuel on 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 fires sometimes. And I know they might just be reporting the truth, but you need to think. Well, I'm reporting the truth, but what what are the consequences of of this story? What could the potential consequences be for these two? people or two parties who are willing to shoot each other like uh, do you think as a, as a journal do you do you feel that you guys do have a duty of care well i i certainly do but i feel like i feel like with crime reporters they're just so horny for the fucking story for the scoop that they'll publish whatever you know um yeah and and, and they don't th- and i mean let's be let's be fucking real who cares about a criminal i mean i've interviewed detectives and they say if a criminal and a criminal kill each other who the fuck cares yeah look it's hard so for me that was a big thing i had to carry and and funny enough they were boycotted and they removed the online one but the the print had already gone out you know so you know, and I received a big apology. And I'm thinking, yeah, your apology. Well, apologise to my wife and kids if I got knocked over fucking something that you wrote that had nothing to do with what the interview was about. What, what has been the one conversation or experience that you think has had the biggest kind of effect on your redemption that you, that you kind of think back on or, or are constantly entangled in? You know what? Um that's a really, really fair question and one that I've never thought about. I've never been asked. If I could put it down to any one thing, I would say it's my children. Um, and and I really have to. I mean, my oldest son is 22 and he's uh, a very successful um, student still. He's a, he's doing his diploma, I think. Yeah, his diploma. He's a sound engineer and he's 22 and he's doing his diploma now and then moving up. And he's in the top 2% of Queensland for his studies. He's, you know, excelling. Um, high distinctions, distinctions in, in everything. So 
you know, I could have really destroyed his life by my choices. Um, I didn't hear or see him for many, many years and I wanted him in my life. So that was a major part, you know, not seeing my, my middle son born because of my choices. My daughter's vision impaired, not being there and she, she's 14 now and I was everything to her and then I left her. You know, like how do you, how do you as a human, let alone a father, put anything else in front of those people? You can't. And for me, it needed to change. It has to change. I still daily need to keep that reminding myself that there's a path I'm on and I must stick to it, especially in the times that, you know, we're struggling at the moment in in a big way. We don't have a home. We've just, to no fault of ours, um, been put into a, a granny flat, five of us, $800 a week, you know, because the owner decided after two years, just wanted to uh, renovate and up the rent, you know. I felt like doing something that I would have done years ago and, <laughs> and I had to stop, you know, I really did. And I just went, I need to protect my children. I need to do what's right. I need to be here. You know, I've had to stop driving trucks around Australia to be present, to be able to be strong and have them know that dad's here, um, you know, and we will get through this. Now, I feel that that alone is enough for, for, for me wanting to find redemption. Brent, there was one thing you mentioned at the start that I feel would give this a bit of closure was that you said that you had a bit more perspective on your relationship with your father, that you'd kind of come to terms with that and you hinted that you might talk about it later. So, sure. So maybe we could close with that. Yeah, look, um, as I said, you know, like growing up my father um, was quite a violent alcoholic, workaholic. Um, I was being sexually abused by neighbours, by brothers, uh, Morris brothers at school. I remember telling my father, my father literally just turned and went, what, you liar, and backhanded me four foot in the air. And, you know, it was just something you couldn't mention. And uh, we today are very, very close after many, many years of um, rebuilding our relationship and I love him dearly and he's not a well man. And we've gotten to really talk as two men. Um, and I'll never forget him one night and I, please God, he doesn't uh, hear this and think I'm talking out of school, but I think it's important and, you know, that the world understands certain things. And, you know, I, I, I was very bitter and very angry at my dad growing up because of who he was and what happened to me. Why didn't he protect me? Why did he constantly flog me? You know, what, what was it? I got taken out of his custody at 10 and put into foster care because of the way he was but he was only a product of his own environment. His father was no different. He was raped, sodomized by a scoutmaster for years when he was a kid. Now, even talking about it now rips my heart out and it takes, I don't even think of what I went through because I think, fuck, that's my dad. I get it. I, I get it. I understand what this man carried for all those years. And it's only now in his latter life that we've been able to talk about this and he felt comfortable to open up. And I just hugged him and I said, I love you, Dad. Like that moment for me was the biggest turning point of me feeling any, any carrying any anger or any animosity for what took place. I get it. I'm a father now. I fucked up. I look in my son's eyes, my oldest son, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, I, I wasn't 
I wasn't ever violent towards him. He never went through anything that I went through, but I was aggressive. In the presence of his mum, I was aggressive. In the presence of him as a child, my mannerisms and how I carried on, that traumatised him. You know what I mean? That that gave him fucking nightmares. You know, his dad was just this maniac. Um, you know, I did things, you know, that shouldn't have been done. But we can talk about it. And I'm open. He knows my story. Like I, I was on SBS on Insight. They did a um, breaking the cycle, and I asked my son, "Would you would you come and accompany me and come down there?" He's a man at that stage, you know. And we did it together. And I felt that that was a very powerful thing for him to understand who his dad was, and me being able to speak about it on national TV. For my father to open up and ring me and tell me these things, man, it ripped my heart to pieces. And and you know, I'm forever grateful because I have closure from that. I can understand, I forgive, and I love my dad. Litmus Media. If anything in this episode has triggered distress, please contact Lifeline on 13 1114 anytime for confidential telephone crisis support.